Once more, and welcome again to another edition, episode six this time of Say Hello to My Little Friend, also known as the Beretta Cast. If you cast your mind back to last episode, episode five was the beginning of the Hell episodes. That was part one. This is part two. Uh, in the previous episode, I outlined my view, which is called annihilationism. Uh, also goes by a number of other names, but that'll do for now. And I I basically laid out a case for annihilationism with three broad types of biblical arguments, and I anticipated some responses to those arguments. Uh, This time, the shoe's on the other foot, and I'm going to be presenting arguments that are used against annihilationism and for the more traditional view of hell as the doctrine of eternal torment. And so, having said that, we should get right underway. Let's rock and roll! So having given three arguments for annihilationism, I'll now give five arguments against annihilationism. As with the case for annihilationism, I'm sure that these are not all the arguments that are used. In fact, I know they're not. All kinds of arguments could be used uh, that I'm not using here. I think it's fair to say, however, that these are among the most common arguments one is likely to encounter, and therefore it is fair to use the ones that I'm going to use today. Uh, With one caveat, the first argument is not a particularly serious group of arguments, but I'm still going to cover it because unfortunately they're very common and they are the type of arguments that if you are an annihilationist and you make it known among other evangelicals, you're likely to encounter them. Trust me, I know. I see them all the time. Uh, So I will be including this first group of arguments, which I've just summarily called unhelpful tactics. Now the first type of argument that fits under this heading is unfortunate but it needs to be included because it is a real argument it is used Uh, unfortunately it does rear its heads in heads yes heads is right because there are several arguments under this heading in some types of evangelical polemical writings so let me just briefly go through those the first kind is I think common in 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 many uh, theological philosophical and other types of debates and that's Uh, the tactic of misrepresentation, either intentional or otherwise. Robert Morey uh, is an author some of you uh, evangelical listeners may be familiar with. He's a Reformed Baptist writer. He wrote a popular-level book in 1984 called Death and the Afterlife, and it's a book that enjoyed some popularity. I think it still does, actually. And it advocated a popular evangelical view of death and the afterlife, in particular a traditional view of hell as eternal torment, and also some criticisms of alternative views, like annihilationism. Unfortunately, it's also a book that exhibits much of what is wrong with popular evangelical theological writing. Now, what do I mean specifically when I say that? Well, specifically, here's what I mean. 
I mean that the book is careless. I mean that it is frequently inaccurate. It makes bad arguments, just poor thinking, poor reasoning that invites the criticism from outsiders, and understandably so, that evangelicals just don't think about what they believe. And relevantly for, for this presentation, it badly misrepresents the views of those whom Maury was seeking to critique, in particular annihilationists. Uh, Edward Fudge, a well-known evangelical annihilationist, uh, wrote a review of Maury's book, and he noted a shocking number of outright misrepresentations of the annihilationist point of view. I noted the number myself when I had a look through Maury's book myself some years ago. I don't know the extent to which our lists will overlap, because I didn't write mine down, but consider the following 12 examples that Edward Fudge has taken note of. Now, according to Robert Maury, Annihilationists admit no degree of punishment, no degrees of punishment. They deny that the Greek word ion has any sense of endlessness. They deny that the traditionalist view appears in the pseudepigrapha, that is the Jewish writings that appeared under a false name. They have no emotional problem with the thought of extinction. They teach that the wicked pass into non-existence forever at death. They say that Sheol only ever means the physical grave. Sheol is a Hebrew word. They deny an afterlife. These are claims that he makes. They think that Socrates and Plato didn't teach the survival of the soul after physical death. He says this on page 56. They, they assign one rigid meaning to the English word soul throughout the Bible. They refuse to allow the New Testament to give new meaning to Old Testament words ever. They teach that no one has, quote, everlasting life now. They dismiss Luke sixteen nineteen to 31, that's the story of the rich man Lazarus, as, quote, nothing. I, I'm sure, just from my impression of, of Maury's book, that Fudge could have gone on. He did say, here are just 12 examples. I suppose it is preferable to call this incompetence rather than malice, but what incompetence? What a level of incompetence. It's as though in this type of writing, and I'm definitely not trying to imply that Maury is the only example, but I can't cover everyone. It's, it's as though in this type of writing, the evangelical author is safely assuming that his evangelical audience will already share his view, and the reader will already consider annihilationists to be wrong or worse meaning that care and rigor can be thrown to the wind when describing the annihilationist view, and nobody will notice or care. In case you were wondering, not a single accusation on that list is true of the annihilationist position. It seems that there are a cluster of falsehoods that circulate in the anti-annihilationist camp. For example, in the book Four Views on Hell, kind of a popular level book published by Zondervan, they have a series of books, Four Views on This, Five Views on That, and it's a pretty useful series. This book was authored by three scholars plus John Walvoord. Now, if that seems harsh, then please reserve that judgment until you've actually read John Walvoord's contribution to this book. Walvoord, who writes on behalf of the traditional view, uh, rather gratuitously calling it the literal view, he writes in this book, he repeats the allegation that annihilationists literally deny the resurrection of the lost. He does that on page 13. He goes further, saying that annihilationism, quote, challenges the doctrine of scriptural inerrancy, on page 167, which in this context just means that annihilationists deny that the biblical teaching is true, 
I kid you not. He adds that annihilationists literally ignore, that's his own terminology, the fact that the Bible even uses the word eternal on page 170. Now, how can annihilationists even reason with people who do this kind of thing? Just as bad as all this is, the charge made by Robert Peterson is no better, I don't think. He, he raises an argument about the atonement. He said it in, in a number of different places. He claims that Edward Fudge and Edward White before him taught, notice that, he doesn't say that this is what Robert Peterson infers from their writings. Robert Peterson says that they actually taught that in dying as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, Christ's human nature became separated from his divine nature, and thus annihilationists reject Chalcedonian Christology and are heretics. Now, it is literally amazing to me that such a weighty and specific claim would be made in what is supposed to be a serious critique of annihilationism in, se in several places, most recently, I think, in his book, uh, co-authored with Edward Fudge, Two Views on Hell. The claim is just not true, not even close to being true. The claim does not appear anywhere in Fudge's work or in Edward White's work, in spite of the claim that this is what they taught. I deal with this major representation in a couple of articles at the Beretta site in the theology section, but just let me say now how low I think this is. A Christian audience has just been told that annihilationists hold to Christological heresy. When they hold to no such thing and the individuals accused have never indicated any such thing, some people, fortunately, will look into the matter and find out that the accusation is completely baseless, either by reading the accused author's so they can hear it from the horse's mouth, or by reading responses to Peterson like the one recently published in JETS, the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. But for many readers, they won't follow this up, and the damage will never be undone. And I consider that to be quite serious. The second unfortunate tactic is, is a common one as well, guilt by association. Now, from time to time, uh, if you have any interest in the subject of annihilationism, you might hear someone say that, Annihilationism is suspect because it's something that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Going back to Robert Morey, he makes an issue of this in his book on death and the afterlife. Now, firstly, it's not quite true, and it suggests a hastiness to lump superficially similar ideas together. Jehovah's Witnesses teach something different and far more complex, involving what they refer to as a second probation or a second chance for the lost, followed by the annihilation of some of them, but I'm not going to go into the complexities of, of Jehovah's Witnesses' theology, other than to notice that the similarities are superficial and, and there are important differences. But the second response is the more important one. To reject annihilationism because of this type of similarity is just lazy reasoning. It's fallacious, uh, which is just a technical word that we use to refer to bad arguments that get used quite a lot. Many traditionalists, for example, agree with some teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses, the inspiration of Scripture, the freedom of the will, the atoning death of Christ, and so forth. Moreover, any traditionalist who tries to smear annihilationists by associating us with Jehovah's Witnesses are going to find that this argument will come back to bite them. They've opened the door to a barrage of similar attacks on their own position. Uh, Mormons and even Muslims, for example, believe in eternal torment. Does that make it false? Of course not. You know, when we are talking about issues to which we appeal to the Bible for support, then the positions advocated will stand or fall based on the level of biblical support that they have. It doesn't make any difference what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. We're not debating with them. The next one is on the list of unhelpful tactics, which is 
particularly unfortunate compared to, to some, I think, because it is a, a tactic of implied character assassination. Sometimes it's not even applied, sometimes it's direct. I won't say too much about it, but if you're familiar with anti-annihilationist writing, you will have seen this come up from time to time. Annihilationists, it is sometimes suggested, uh, lack missionary zeal. They don't really care about reaching the lost because they don't anticipate that the unsaved are going to suffer forever anyway. That's implied in a number of writings against annihilationism. Well, how's this gem from John Braun, the author of Whatever Happened to Hell? He says that annihilationists, and this is a quote, wanted to be universalists but just couldn't bring themselves to justify it. That's on page 49 of his book. There you go. We wanted to be universalists, apparently. Robert Morey uh, makes the accusation, I'm not sure if it's better or worse than the previous one, that annihilationists are, well, actually, no, it's worse. Annihilationists are people seeking to, quote, silence their conscience, another, quote, justify their wicked lives, and another, quote, defend their evil ways. That's in Death and the Afterlife, page 157. I don't think any further comment on that is needed. I will end my summary of unhelpful tactics there. The kind of, this is sort of an overview comment now, the kind of venom and heat directed at the annihilationist point of view is both spectacular, and it really is spectacular sometimes, as you may have seen from the examples used, spectacular and also very disappointing, coming as it does from a professing Christian community and being directed as it is against other Christians. If these are the careless, fallacious, and ungracious tactics that believers use against each other, who can fault unbelievers for thinking that Christian scholarship has gone to the dogs? In fairness, attacks like these do not make up the bulk of the critiques of annihilationism. And I'll turn now to what I think are the major biblical arguments against annihilationism and for eternal torment. When I call them biblical arguments, I mean they're arguments that appeal to Scripture. Ultimately, I think they're unbiblical because they don't represent Scripture well, but at least they make the correct attempt. Uh, you may notice, and yes, this is intended as a critique, not just an observation, that the arguments are not nearly as thematic in nature as the arguments I gave for annihilationism. Uh, previously, when, when defending annihilationism, I noted that the arguments for annihilationism are not based on kind of a text, and there's another argument built on this text. They are themes that are developed throughout Scripture, whereas what I think you'll notice here is that the arguments against annihilationism and for the traditional view do have a stronger tendency to be based on individual, dare I say, isolated passages or even verses. That being said, let's get into it. The first one is the rich man and Lazarus, a familiar story from the Gospel of Luke. I've started out with the story that Jesus tells in Luke sixteen nineteen to 31 the story of the rich man and Lazarus, because A, it's a common text used to combat annihilationism, but also B, I'm, using, I'm referring to this one first because I want to explain why it actually doesn't really address the subject that annihilationism speaks to, so I want to just get this argument out of the way, then get on to the, what I consider the more weighty ones that are more relevant. The story of the rich man and Lazarus is the story of a rich man and a poor man who die and are immediately taken to their respective destinations in the afterlife. Lazarus to a place where he rests with Abraham and not, by the way, to a place known in Jewish theology as Abraham's bosom, 
There actually was no such place in Jewish theology until later. This, in the story that Jesus tells, was merely a place where Abraham was, and Lazarus was able to rest against him, uh, as one might at, uh, at a table with a friend in those days. And the rich man is taken to Hades, which in the story is a place of great heat, where he is unable to access water. And so he asks that Lazarus be allowed to, to you know, bring some water on the tip of his finger. And so we are told, This passage in Luke presents us with a picture of what hell will be like, and it consists of ongoing torment and not final annihilation. In the 2004 work, uh, Hell Under Fire, uh, edited by Christopher Morgan and Robert Peterson, and contributed to by nine evangelical scholars altogether, this passage in Luke's Gospel is cited no fewer than five times as indicative of what hell will be like in a book where the term hell refers to the doctrine of eternal punishment. So this passage, then, is taken to teach that hell is a place of eternal conscious separation from God in a state of suffering. Now there are a couple of replies to make to this. The first reply is the more complicated one, and it's actually unnecessary given the strength of the second reply, but I'll touch on the first reply just briefly. The first reply is that there is no decisive reason to think that this story a is true at all or b was ever intended as a teaching on the nature of the afterlife at all now to some who perhaps aren't familiar with the cut and thrust of new testament scholarship that might come as a bit of a shocking thing to say and to those people i say look just wait until the next argument <laughs> all right for the others the fact is and and this is actually the subject of a piece of writing that i'm working on at the moment there is very good evidence that this story was not original with Jesus. And that is to say, he didn't make it up. In fact, I'd suggest that the listener who is skeptical of this just consult a few weighty critical commentaries on Luke's Gospel, and you'll notice something. Virtually, I don't want to say absolutely all, because I can't be sure of that by any means. Virtually all commentators, regardless of their view on the eternal state, will acknowledge this. Even some more popular-level works on the parables will candidly say this much. Uh, for example, Edmund Flood, in a book called More Parables for Now, notes the following. Once again, I'm quoting now, Once again, Jesus takes something from his audience's experience. This time, it is a popular story. As writers and other artists have always done, he fashions existing material to his own purposes. He adds, Jesus, in this story, didn't want to speak about the afterlife. He wasn't telling his audience what would happen in the future when they had died, that was just the backdrop to what he wanted to say, the furniture he was taking over from a familiar set. So that's kind of a popular level uh, commentator. Perhaps the, the foremost German New Testament scholar of the mid-20th century, uh, Joachim Jeremias, explains that Jesus actually refers to the same story twice. A lot of us might not realize that because we aren't familiar with the original story that Jesus is drawing on. But it's the story of the rich tax collector Bar Majan. A, sto a, a story that appears in the... <laughs> I mangled that. <laughs> a story that appears in, uh, in the Palestinian Talmud. It eventually appears there, but it existed before it appeared there. Bear in mind the Palestinian Talmud is a fairly late piece of writing, but the, the material incorporated into it isn't. Jesus draws on several details of the story in the parable of the great feast, but here in Luke 16 the parallel is even closer. In the original, a teacher of the law and a rich tax collector die, 
and in accordance with, accordance with the prejudices of the religious community that produced this story, a friend of the legal scholar is shown in a dream the fates of the two. The teacher of the law is relaxing by a flowing stream in paradise, while the tax collector, of course the unpopular tax collector, is suffering on the other side without being able to access the water. Sound familiar? The similarity is obvious, but so too is the difference. The thing that Jesus' audience will immediately recognize is the way the story has changed. Anybody familiar with Luke and scholarship in general will be aware that the dominant theological theme in Luke is that of eschatological reversal. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is explaining to them how badly the Jewish leaders understood God's kingdom. Wealth, status, and religious authority were taken as evidence of God's favor, and Jesus shows them how wrong they have got it. You know this story well, effectively, says Jesus, where you exalt yourself and shun those undesirable elements, but you've got it backwards. That's the message here. The reason Lazarus is named here is that the name Lazarus means God helps. That is, when man would not help because of his prejudice, God helps because of his grace. And so I think David Wenham is therefore right when he issues the warning that the parable was not intended as a map of the afterlife, though it has often been used or misused that way. Secondly, even if you have no interest at all in the first century and earlier background of this story, if you find all such critical scholarship a bit complex or, or perhaps just a bit liberal, forget it. Just think about what the story itself purports to be about. Bear in mind, annihilationism or eternal torment are positions, two different positions, on the nature of the eternal state following the judgment. But this story makes no claim to even depict any such fate. Instead, it paints it what I think is a bizarre picture of the intermediate state immediately following death. This is further confirmed, in fact, I think conclusively confirmed, by the fact that the place the rich man finds himself in, in the Greek of Luke's Gospel, is called Hades. This term uh, refers variously to the grave, the state of death, to the intermediate state, or, or in mythology, to the underworld. The final state that we call hell is referred to with the Greek term Gehenna, a different word altogether. For example, in Matthew 10.28, where Jesus warns of God's ability to destroy body and soul in Gehenna. But that word's not here in Luke 16. So this passage has literally nothing at all to say about whether or not annihilationism is true. Even if I accepted that it were a true story, which I don't, it says nothing about annihilationism, because it doesn't even speak about the final judgment and eternal punishment afterwards. Incidentally, I highly recommend, I say this because I mentioned the term Gehenna, I recommend having a look at the origin of the term Gehenna in the New Testament and what it means. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew Gehinom, or sometimes Gehbenhinom, meaning the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. Have a look in the Old Testament, it's referred to a number of times. It's an actual geographical place just southwest of Jerusalem, a place long associated with mass death and destruction. And according to many sources, a place of burning, uh, because it became a place of disgrace and contempt, where rubbish was thrown, being consumed in the flames. The perfect picture of final destruction. But that's a side note. Okay, so I think so. I just want to set that argument a bit from the, the story of the Luke, Lucan parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I want to set that argument aside, firstly because 
I don't think it's a true story, but even if it were, it's not quite on the same subject that we're discussing here today. So let's get on to what I think are, are more worthy arguments. The first, and maybe the most important, because I think this may be the most often used argument, is the argument from the phrase eternal punishment. One of the major arguments used by traditionalists against annihilationism is the fact that the Bible uses this phrase, eternal punishment, to refer to the state of the lost. Uh, a number of other texts that also use the word eternal are then taken to refer to the same thing, making the argument from this text stronger. And so it is argued that this is a reference to the eternal torments of hell. This interpretation is strengthened by the reference to the eternal fire that also occurs in this passage that I'm about to read, which occurs at the end of Jesus' illustration of the sheep and the goats. This is in Matthew 25. And the salient verses are 41 and 46. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then the final verse in this passage, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so there are the terms in question, eternal fire and eternal punishment. To this list, I'll add a couple of others that are often mentioned as well because of their use of the word eternal. Uh, Daniel 12.2, which refers to shame and everlasting contempt, and 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10, which uses the phrase everlasting destruction. Incidentally, the terms everlasting and eternal are translated from identical Greek and Hebrew words, which is why I'm happy to just switch between them as though they were the same, because they are. I'll deal first with Matthew's use of eternal fire. The gist of the response that I would make here is that what is qualified as eternal is not any duration of suffering or the people who are subject to eternal fire, but only the fire itself. Now, if you immediately think, well, that's a bit strained, What's the point of having a fire that lasts forever? Keep listening. You may be surprised at what you find out next. The phrase, puros ionios, is rare in the New Testament, occurring only three times. The first occurrence is also in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 18, verse 8, where it says that it's better to enter life missing a hand or a foot than to have all your hands and feet but to be thrown into the eternal fire. Apart from the phrase itself, nothing else about anything said in that text is is eternal. Um, nothing else in that text is said to be eternal, just the fire. The second occurrence is here in Matthew 25, which I've already quoted. Now, given a traditionalist mindset, you'd expect that the third use of this phrase also occurs when describing the flames of hell, right? Wrong. Have a look at Jude, verse 7. No chapter, just verse 7, because there's only one chapter. I'll quote it here. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, literally strange flesh, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That's the text. How did Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example to the world? By undergoing, as the authorized version puts it, the vengeance of eternal fire. The Greek word here, for example, here literally refers to a sample of something. I'm told that it was used in that culture, for example, to refer to samples of, of food and, and produce. So if you want to know what eternal fire is like, just look at what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. But 
What did happen to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, it's recorded for us in Genesis 19. I'll read verses 24 through 28. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone, that is sulfur, and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife, that is Lot's wife, looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld and lo, good old King James Version here, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. Now if that's what eternal fire did to Sodom and Gomorrah, there is no basis for just assuming that when the phrase appears in the Gospels, it must refer to a fire that torments people forever. But what about this phrase used in Matthew 25, eternal punishment? Doesn't that suggest eternal torment, even if eternal fire doesn't by itself? Well, consider this question. Does the book title, Crime and Punishment, mean the same thing as crime and torment? The answer is obvious. No, not at all. No one would think that. Granted, torment might be one kind of punishment that could be inflicted on people, but it is hardly the only thing that could be called punishment. This type of argument is what is known as committing the fallacy of begging the question. Now, begging the question, also called engaging in circular reasoning, occurs when a person tries to argue for a certain conclusion, but actually smuggles that conclusion back into the argument itself, meaning that they were just presupposing the outcome all along. For example, Let's say that I believe that hell will actually be eternal annihilation. Annihilation forever, from which there is no coming back. Now let's say I quote Matthew 25:46, the verse that we're looking at here, as proof of this claim. And I say, there it is in black and white, eternal punishment. And by the way, since punishment is annihilation, this verse proved my position. No, it doesn't prove my position. <laughs> I would have just assumed my own view of divine punishment and smuggled it back into the word punishment so that no wonder I ended up finding it there. I put it there. Likewise, if we just assume that punishment means torment, then the phrase eternal punishment obviously will end up meaning eternal torment. But we've got to do better than just assuming that our view is correct. The disagreement over this verse is not over the meaning of eternal, but rather the content of the punishment. It's not even the meaning of the word punishment that's in dispute. It's the content or nature of the punishment in this case that is in dispute. A whole range of things can be referred to with the term punishment, including torment or execution or perhaps any number of other things. I know monetary fines, for example. Interestingly, no straightforward narrative or didactic passage of Scripture ever uses a phrase like eternal torment or eternal suffering. But in Paul's second, le second letter to the Thessalonians, he does refer to everlasting destruction or eternal destruction, which means that there is now no ambiguity about what the eternal punishment consists of. It consists of destruction. But what about this text in Second Thessalonians? It's one of those texts that I list as using the word eternal here. How is it that it is appealed to both by traditionalists and annihilationists as though it supports their position? It can't support both, obviously. The passage refers to those who reject the gospel and, quote, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction, 
from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. On the face of it, it seems clear enough why the annihilationist might appeal to this text. It's similar to the biblical reference to eternal punishment, but it's more specific. It doesn't just say punishment, which is kind of a generic term. It specifies what type of punishment is in view, namely destruction. So why do traditionalists appeal to this text as well? Their argument is twofold. Firstly, since the word eternal is used, the destruction cannot be literal in the way the annihilationists think. And secondly, because the lost are said in this text to go on existing outside of the Lord's presence, they clearly have not been destroyed, literally. So those are the two arguments. And let's look at those arguments in turn. Douglas Moo is a well-known evangelical New Testament scholar. Writing against annihilationism, he presents the first argument as clearly as I think is possible. He says, and I quote, In the nature of the case, a punctilia action, such as annihilate, cannot be eternal. But by so qualifying olithros, that's the Greek word for uh, destruction here, therefore, Paul indicates that it must describe a state, he writes in brackets, ruin, rather than an action. Let's stop there to analyze the argument so far. Firstly, note that annihilationists agree that everlasting destruction is a state rather than an act. Of course, the act of annihilating can't be eternal, or annihilating would never get done. But the resulting annihilation or destruction clearly could be eternal. Destruction, after all, is a noun referring to a state and not a verb. So it appears that Dr. Mu is attacking something of a straw man. But what basis does Mu give for asserting that the state must be one of ruin instead of literal destruction? Unfortunately, that straw man argument is all there is. But look at what comes next. Mu now, unintentionally I'm sure, but in my opinion completely, destroys his position. Observe. I'll read from the page itself. He says, A more promising way of squaring Ionios, that is eternal, with annihilationism is to argue that the word refers not to the action itself, but to the results of the action. The destruction has eternal consequences. There is some point to this claim. In other New Testament passages where eternal describes a noun of action, it is sometimes the results of the action that are indicated. The eternal sin of Mark 3.29, for instance, means a sin whose consequences last forever. See also Hebrews 5.9.6.2.9.12 and Jude 7. If I remembering that Hebrews 6.1, sorry, Hebrews 6.2 correctly, it refers to the eternal judgment, which is a one-off act of God that has eternal consequences. Anyway, going back to Moon now. Nevertheless, even if this is the sense of the word here, one must still ask how a destruction whose consequences last forever can be squared with annihilationism, for eternal consequences appear to demand an eternal existence in some form. Here's the thing. Eternal consequences do not always demand eternal existence of the person. That may be the case for some consequences, like the consequences of, I don't know, being in pain or the consequences of being miserable. But there is absolutely no way that the consequences of being annihilated 
demand that the person always exists. Indeed, if the person ever came back into existence, then the consequence of annihilation wouldn't be eternal. It would merely be temporary. So in order for the consequences of everlasting destruction to be eternal, the person has to not exist forever. Here's the second traditionalist argument from this verse in Second Thessalonians. Douglas Moo referred to it earlier. This time it's presented by Robert Peterson. He says of this passage, quoting now, Furthermore, does it make sense for the apostle to describe unbelievers' extinction as their being shut out from the presence of the Lord? In quote marks. Does not their being shut out from his presence imply their existence? So, the argument is that not only are the lost punished with everlasting destruction, destruction, but the text goes on to say that they are also, Peterson quoted the word and, meaning also, shut out from God's presence, suggesting that even having had destruction inflicted upon them, they still exist. Uh, Douglas Moo does use this exact same argument. He says, and I quote, A second reason for thinking that destruction refers to the end of any prospect of a meaningful relationship with God he means as opposed to annihilationism, is that Paul expands the concept of destruction with just this idea. People are, quote, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, end quote. Quoting from 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9b. Both authors, deliberately, and I am assuming it's deliberate, chose the NIV as their translation of choice here, and for a very good reason. Had they chosen instead the authorized version, the ESV, the RSV, the NASB, or any number of fairly literal translations, they would have been unable to make this argument. That's how bad it is. This is because the words and shut out are not found in the Greek at all. They're not translated from any Greek words. The only preposition here is apo, which answers to the translated word from. Hence, the authorized version has simply, and quite literally and, and rightly, it says, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. End quote. Big difference. So it's not the case that this verse is saying that they shall suffer everlasting destruction and also they shall be shut out from the presence of the Lord, as the NIV quite misleadingly suggests. Rather, they will be removed from the presence of the Lord by being destroyed with an everlasting destruction. So they are punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. It's like they're kind of blasted out of his presence, as it were. Yes, it refers to exclusion, but not in addition to destruction. That's a mistake on the part of the NIV translators, that no other translation that I'm aware of follows. It is exclusion by means of destruction, which is how the verse reads in the AV, NASB, ESV, and so forth, following the Greek much more literally than the NIV at this point. The last text that I'll cite used by traditionalists because of the word eternal is Daniel 12.2, which is also quite commonly cited. Daniel 12.2 says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Uh, Daniel Block, writing in favor of the doctrine of eternal torment, says, quote, Prior to Daniel 12.2, we find no clear evidence of belief in hell, if by hell we mean a place of eternal torment and judgment of the wicked, for the wicked, sorry. As an aside, by the word hell, this is me talking now, by the word hell, we shouldn't just mean a place of eternal torment is a matter of definition. 
we should only mean the place or state of future punishment. Whether it involves eternal torment is a matter of debate. It should not be an a priori matter of brute definition that we just smuggle into the word. Otherwise, a debate about what hell is like would be pointless. Hell just means eternal torment, and that is that. But clearly what Bloch is saying is that Daniel 12.2 is a reference to eternal torment, and he's not alone. Robert Peterson likewise claims that the shame and everlasting contempt referred to here, quote, indicates a never-ending conscious existence that corresponds to the never-ending conscious existence of the righteous, end quote. But why is this? Why does he think this? Where does that belief come from? How does he justify it? After all, it's obvious that the text doesn't actually state that. It is only the righteous who are specifically said to receive any kind of eternal life at all. What is shown to the wicked is only shame and contempt, and not life. So why do traditionalists think that this shows that they will have an eternally miserable life of suffering? I would like to be able to peel back the surface of traditionalist arguments about this verse and dig deeper into them to see all the mechanics and discuss them the mechanics of how the conclusion is reached. But unfortunately, what you've just heard is about as deep as it gets. That is the argument. The observation about shame and contempt is made, and then a claim about everlasting conscious existence is kind of tacked on to the end of that observation. So let me go out on a limb here and try to help the traditional case out. Perhaps the traditionalist might want to insist and make an argument that in order for a person's shame and or contempt to go on existing, it must be the case that that person in question is still alive. But what good reason is there to think that this is true? In fact, there's a biblical example that shows this is not true. Uh, look at Isaiah 66. In context, God has just victoriously slain his enemies. Let's go to uh, verses 15 and following, and you'll see this. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Okay, so God has just killed off his enemies. And then we come down the end here to verse 24, and this same passage closes with a reference to the righteous, who... Quote, shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, that is God. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now what has happened to the wicked? Well, it's simple, they're dead. They've been killed. The context is very clear about that. But notice the word abhorrence here in the ESV. It varies from one translation to another. They shall be loathsome, or they shall be an abhorrence. These are common ways of translating it. But here's the thing, it's the same word translated contempt in Daniel 12.2, Dara'on. Here in Isaiah, the contempt is held by the people of God for the slain enemies of God. Likewise, in Daniel 12.2, it's the contempt not of the wicked, but of the people of God, or perhaps even of God himself, for the wicked that is eternal. Now in Isaiah, these wicked people are dead. So we can't just insist, well, the fact that the shame and contempt exists means that the wicked still exist alive, as Robert Peterson appeared to assume. We're not entitled to just assume that when, when the Bible gives us an example where that's clearly not the case. Now, it makes sense to talk this way even today. As I was preparing this part of the presentation, I did a quick search on the internet just to see if this type of, of language was out there at all. And one of the very first results I get was an example of a person condemning the integrity of a certain political figure, doesn't matter who it was, saying, and I quote, that 
Quote, After he and his kind are dust, only their shame will remain. Obviously, he didn't mean that he lived on, or he will still be alive. He's just using the same kind of biblical language that appears in Isaiah or appears in Daniel 12.2. So I think this argument from Daniel 12.2 as an argument for eternal torment simply fails. And you know what? I've just looked at the clock and realized how long this episode is already. So I'm actually going to make it two episodes examining arguments for the traditional view and against annihilationism. Next time I'll be talking about traditionalists' uses of verses that talk about unquenchable fire and undying worms, as well as the use of uh, apocalyptic imagery from the book of Revelation. In the meantime, however, uh, I can't possibly let you all go with a week without having one of these, so it's time now for... It's time again for This Week in History, and we'll be brief this time. Uh, the week, 15th to 21st of July. July 15th in 1099, the First Crusade finally captures Jerusalem, massacring thousands. The city was filled with corpses and blood, wrote one chronicler. Charming. July 16th, 1519, the Disputation of Leipzig, in which Martin Luther argued that the church councils had been wrong and that the church did not have ultimate doctrinal authority, ends. July 17, the year 180, seven men and five women who had been captured carrying the sacred books and letters of Paul are tried before Roman proconsul Saturninus. Since none would renounce their Christian faith, all twelve were beheaded. July 17, 1505, Martin Luther, aged 21, enters the Augustinian monastic order. July 18, in the year 64 AD, or should I say AD 64, the Great Fire of Rome begins, and to direct suspicion away from himself, who actually started the fire, young Emperor Nero blames the city's Christians. A persecution follows in which Christians were, among other punishments, burned alive for this crime. July 18, 1870, the Vatican I Council votes 533 votes to two to introduce the dogma of papal infallibility. Oh, what a good idea. As to find that the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when, he, when in discharge of the office of pastor and teacher of all Christians, by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine regarding faith or morals to be held by the universal church is possessed of that infallibility with which the divine redeemer willed that his church should be endowed. End quote. July twentieth, eighteen fifty eight, Charles Darwin began writing his seminal and history changing book, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. Uh, July twenty one, fifteen forty two, with the decree Sanctum Officium, Pope Paul the Third institutes the Inquisition against Protestants. July 21st, 1925, speaking of Darwin again, biology teacher John T. Scopes is fined $100 for teaching evolution. He lost the now-notorious Scopes trial, but because of it, Christian non-evolutionists lost considerable respect in the public eye. Now, next time on Say Hello to My Little Friend, I'll be looking at the two final arguments for the doctrine of eternal torment, as mentioned earlier, and if I do say so myself, they're probably the two most interesting types of argument. And the next episode won't be as long as this one, I promise. So until next time. <laughs>